0: Please turn with me in the Word of God to Mark chapter twelve and let me thank you for the opportunity to spend this weekend with you. It's been a delight. We'll be reading the entire chapter. This is God's holy and inspired word. Please give it your full attention. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, He sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them saying, they will respect My son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this Scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize Him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that He spoke the parable against them. And so they left Him and went away. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Him in order to trap Him in a statement. They came and said to Him, Teacher, we know that You are truthful and defer to no one, for You are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and scripture is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they were amazed at him. Some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, "Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up the children to his brother. There were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died leaving no children. The second one married her and died leaving behind no children and the third likewise. And so, all seven left no children. Last of all, the women died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven have married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. For regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and, of, and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. One of the scribes came and heard him arguing and recognizing he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is for the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to Him, "Right, Teacher, you have truly stated that He is one and there is no one else besides Him. And to love Him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor As himself, as much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Mm -hmm. David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? And a large crowd enjoyed listening to him. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, "'Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury.'" For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owed, all that she had to live on. May God bless the reading of His Word. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you who are our rock and redeemer. In this we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On October thirty-first, 1517, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses for debate upon the cathedral door at Wittenberg in what we now know as the Protestant Reformation began. Soon thereafter, Christians in Europe were divided. The material question, the chief doctrinal question was, what is the nature of justification? Was it, as the Roman Catholic Church claimed, the combined work of God and man or was it, as Martin Luther claimed, the free act of God which is received by faith alone? That was the material question. The formal question is who gets to decide the answer? What authority should be used in deciding the answer to that doctrinal question? For the Roman Catholic Church, it was the magisterium, the bishops, namely the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. For Luther, the answer was Scripture. Scripture alone. Now, we are Protestants. We side with Luther. We believe that justification is by faith alone. And we believe that all church power is ministerial and declarative. That is, it's a matter of thus saith the Lord. But what does that mean today? What does that mean to live out that commitment today in the modern world? Well, in the mid-1990s, Robert Patterson asked that question in the form of a review article for Christianity Today. And to illustrate the point, the editors of Christianity Today provided a provocative picture it was a man going down a, a busy uh, street, a uh, downtown street. People were all around him, hustle and bustle. But then you looked at the face and you realized that this was no ordinary man because uh, the, the face was that of Martin Luther. And the headline above it was, Reformed Aliens, the Character of Christian Communities. And the picture told the story, in the modern world, the spiritual heirs of the Reformation can feel as if they're all alone, even among other Protestants. Well, this review article was was addressing two books that had just been published about Reformed churches. One was about the Reformed Episcopalians. The other book, however, was the book that Patterson focused on. It was Darrell Hart and John Smither's Fighting the Good Fight, A Brief History of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Patterson noted in the review article that by modern standards, the OPC is everything that sophisticated evangelicals would consider tacky. The review stated that the OPC is a tiny, peculiar, marginal, schismatic, doctrinally or liturgically exclusive and socially awkward body. <laughs> and the reviewer maintained that he believed that these tra- traits were not attractive to the sophisticated evangelicals because with this type of church, You could never transform the culture. But he also stated that this has been okay with the OPC. That the preaching and teaching faithfully of the Word of God has been more important to this body than parachurch organizations, revivalism, and decisionism. And in Patterson's judgment, this is why the OPC has guarded the spirituality of the church and been content to leave the transformation of culture in the hands of Providence. But he also says, or stated in this article, this has made the OPC reformed aliens, not understood by fundamentalists, evangelicals, or liberal Protestants, much less Roman Catholicism. Now, I appreciate that review, and I very much appreciate the book. But here's the point, friends. The evaluation that matters most of our church is not what others think of us and it's not what we think of ourselves. The evaluation that matters most is that of King Jesus. His judgment is that which should concern us. His judgment about the church is what should be all important. And that's why we have turned this morning to Mark chapter 12. Because here the church is passing before Jesus for review. It's actually the Old Testament church, uh, Israel, that's passing before Jesus for review. But this is written here for our instruction. That we would not repeat the errors that Israel uh, made Uh, For if we are, as Reformed, a people of the Word, and as Orthodox Presbyterians, if we believe in the straight teaching of the Word of God, we must take these admonitions uh, to heart that we find here, lest we repeat the same errors. Now, in coming to Mark chapter 12, I am reminded of the first chapter of the Confession of Faith. Uh, That first chapter talks about the uh, Holy Scriptures, and it talks about uh, in the Holy Scriptures there's a majesty of style, a consent of all the parts, and the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God. And that's because the Scriptures all point to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it's so wonderfully done, it's so amazing the Spirit leading these authors to write in the way that they did. And in Mark chapter 12, it's just stunning when you look at it literally. There are so many things going on here. For instance, uh, there is this contrast going on in this text between the old and new orders. And that's one of the themes of Mark's Gospel. That the king has arrived and he has brought with him his kingdom. And this new order is changing Everything. The old order is being terminated. And here in Mark 12, the failure of that old order is brought to the fore. Israel, their leaders, what is their great error? They don't love God and they don't love their neighbor. And that's seen here. They are blind and deaf to the things of God, they delight only in show and outward appearance, they don't give their hearts to God. And so Jesus starts this chapter then by telling a parable of just how bad things are in Israel. A man planted a vineyard and nurtured it and then left it to his servants to cultivate. And then when the time comes, uh, he sends a servant to collect fruit from that vineyard. But that servant is beaten and he's sent away empty-handed. And the next servant is treated even worse. And then... Um, a pattern develops. Some are beaten, some are killed. And finally, the owner of that vineyard says, I'll send my son. They'll respect my son. What do the, 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 those wicked servants do? They plot to kill the heir and to steal the inheritance. And so what will the owner of that vineyard do? We're told he will come and destroy the, the, that, those fine dressers and give that vineyard to others. That's the penalty for Israel rejecting the Son, Jesus Christ. No sooner has God the Father sent the Son, and the Son is introduced, that He is cast out. And what you have there, here then is the end of the theocracy in Israel. And what follows in the rest of this chapter then is the sign of the judgment coming upon Israel in that old order and the promise of the new order marked by devotion to the Lord. And that's seen at the end of this chapter with the widow. She gives all. She is the exact opposite of these leaders. She gives all that she has because she loves the Lord God alone. He is her treasure. And she believes that He will provide for her. We will come back to the widow. But for our purposes, again, the majesty and the beauty of this chapter, uh, I would like for us to look at just again what is going on here uh, structurally. So there's not only this movement from the old to the new, But there's also that in which the whole chapter is pointing our eye to a central event. Now, what you have in this chapter, literally, uh, is an inclusio. That means you have markers. You have a marker at the beginning and you have a marker at the end. There's brackets. There's brackets here that help us identify what is going on. And so whenever you see brackets in a text and you can match them up, then it starts to point you to the middle of the text so that you might understand the meaning and in this case in this case, these brackets are pointing us to verses eighteen through twenty seven That is the central episode here in this passage it 's where Jesus encounters the Sadducees now let me let me lay this out for you and we'll, we'll again we'll we'll come back to to that but look at the beginning of this chapter and you can see these brackets look at first 9 you have in first 9 the declaration at the end of this parable that the owner will come back and destroy the tenants now go to the end of the chapter first 41 jesus says in first 41 That the scribes will receive the greater condemnation. So, verses 1 through 9 and verses 38 through 41, there's these parallel warnings about the impending judgment upon Israel. And so that forms your outer bracket, that forms your outer ring. Now, look at what happens inside of those. Verse 10. Jesus says, have you heard scriptures, and then he quotes Psalm 118, that the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in his eyes. And after he quotes this psalm, there's a rejection. I mean, there's a reaction to this psalm. The leaders want to arrest him. Go to verse 35 now. How Jesus says, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? And then he quotes Psalm one hundred ten. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put all your enemies under your feet. And so there's a reading of the Psalm, and then there's a reaction that all the great throng heard him gladly. So you see it? There's another there's this inner ring. So now you go uh, to, verse, to verse thirteen through seventeen. There's a question from the Pharisees about whether it is uh, proper, lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Go to verse 28. There is a question about the scribes, about which commandment is most important of all. What these are, friends, these are matching legal discussions. Do you see it? So there's these warnings. Then you quote these psalms and the reactions. Then you have the matching legal discussions. Your eye is being pointed inward to the central event of the whole chapter. And that central event is Jesus' encounter with the Sadducees. They ask a question about the day of resurrection, but they ask it in a way that it's mocking. It's mocking the re- resurrection. They want to know in the resurrection whose wife a woman would be if she were married the seven brothers consecutively. Jesus did not only, does not only uh, 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 rebuke them, He tells them they are flat out wrong. They do not understand the Scriptures. They do not understand the power of God. God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And He has promised eternal life to those who believe in Him. Now, who were the Sadducees? They were the leaders. They were the elite. They were the cultural uh, big shots in Israel. And here they are passing for review before Jesus. And His verdict is they don't understand the Scriptures. They don't understand the resurrection. They do not understand the power of God. They just don't understand. And as they do not understand... They do not love the Lord and they do not love their neighbor. And uh, what a tragedy. Um, here is their Savior. He is on the scene. And they just want to moth a belief in the resurrection. They do not understand that He is the One who has come to establish David's throne forever. Forever. They just do not understand. You know, this one, this one is not only David's son, this one is David's Lord. And resurrected from the dead and ascended upon high, he will be the one who will secure the throne forever. He's the promised one, and yet they're blind to it. The old order is blind to it, and that's why the old order is being terminated. But the Lord always preserves for Himself a a remnant. And that's what we see with the widow. We can tell from the context that the Passover is at hand. She's in the court of the women. Now when you would enter the court of the women in the temple, there would be 13 bronze receptacles on the walls. They were in the form of trumpets. And uh, you could hear an offering even if you could not see what was being put in it because you would hear the clink. You would hear those, uh, the coins uh, being put in those bronze receptacles. And she comes with all that she has. She has two small coins. And she gives them both. Um, it's uh, stunning. I mean... She could have kept one and no one would have thought any any the worse. But she gives all that she has. Why? Because in striving after the greatest mammoth to love God with all of her heart, she is showing that the Lord God is more precious to her than anything else in this world. The Lord is her treasure, her hope, her portion. And she stands in such contrast then to these leaders, these hypocrites. They devour all. They want others to serve them. She gives all. They want to be seen by others. They want to be exalted. What she does, she does quietly. She does humbly in putting in her two coins. They abuse their power and exploit the weak for financial gain. She comes in faith, trusting the Lord. They are obsessed with earthly things that will fade away. Power, prestige, and wealth. She lays hold of that which will not uh, fade away God Himself. They have a calculated piety that looks to the letter of the law. She has a simple piety that looks beyond the law to God Himself. It's two different views of religion. It's two different views of life. One is man-centered. The other is God-centered. One refuses to give up his life here and now. The other says the only life I have here and now is to be given up for God. You see, the posture of the widow is the posture of the church that is bound to Jesus Christ and to His Word. For the call of the Gospel is to surrender to our Lord and Savior and to trust in Him. For it's a recognition of who we are. Sinners who apart from God have no hope in this life or in the one to come. Now what she does, it's stunning. It's a stunning act of piety. It's a stunning act of of self-denial. But it pales, pales in comparison to the self-denial of Jesus. Jesus gave himself up to satisfy God's justice. For our sakes, for our sakes, Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. Even though he was sinless, he went to the cross that we might be forgiven. He's the only one who obeys the will of the Father perfectly. He's the only one utterly devoted to, to God. He's the only one who truly surrenders all. He adds humiliation that we might experience the forgiveness of sins, and because he has obeyed even to the point of death, God has exalted him above all others. That's our King. That's our Lord. That's our Savior. So the question is: the question is, friends, how are we? How are we to worship and serve this one that we, whose name we claim? Do we act like that old order that it's all about ourselves? Do we act about that like that old order, corrupt and about uh, abusing power, wanting others to serve us, biting and devouring even the poor, even the widows? Friends, this is what was happening in Europe when Martin Luther nailed these theses the reason why Johann Tetzel was selling indulgences, uh, those papal writs that promised uh, loved ones uh, would be released from purgatory and sins would be forgiven. Do you know why he was selling them? It was to raise money. It was to raise money so that they could pay for the work upon St. Peter's Cathedral. So the Roman Catholic Church at that time was not only promising a false salvation, It was taking money from the poor to pay for the extravagance. And that's why Luther was so upset. It was like seeing a living out of this chapter. Friends, do you know what Johann Tensel was singing as he went about the streets in Wittenberg? As soon as the coin in the coffer clinks, the soul from purgatory springs. Those coins in the Temple of the Women where you could hear it. That widow, knowing their only hope was in God and God alone and giving all versus the Roman Catholic Church at that time praying upon the widows. That's the corruption that was taking place. And that's why Martin Luther nailed those theses. Our justification is by faith alone. It's solely by the work of God alone. It's by grace alone. And that's why we give all to our God. Well, 400 years after that episode, the start of the Reformation, the Presbyterian Church, USA, was experiencing its own decay in order to maintain its own cultural influence. It didn't want to remove or discipline pastors in its midst who had departed from the faith. It was okay in the Presbyterian church to declare that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a mere theory that wasn't essential to the faith. Friends, on the basis of the Word of God, here in Mark chapter 12, those who declare such things do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God. They are solely mistaken. You do not understand what Jesus Christ has come to do to save poor sinners like you and me. You see, that's why Nation and others, uh, even those who started Faith Church here in Pool Tavern, that's why they took the stand that they did. You see, in 1936, taking that stand meant losing any culture or prestige or, or influence that you might have associated with the mainline church. It meant giving up a building that your parents and probably your grandparents and, uh, often before that even uh, paid for and sacrificially gave to. Why would anyone do that? Only those who know that their true treasure is in God and God alone. Only those who know that they owe everything to the Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why you give up these things. And that's why in our best moments as a church, our chief end is to glorify our God and to enjoy Him forever. But friends, here's the truth. And we all know this. We all know this. We fail. We fail in this endeavor daily. The truth is we don't always find our life hidden in Christ. The truth is that so often we aspire after the things of this world that we have not kept the commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. And that's why, and that's why we should never pound our chest and look down at others. We are sinners, saved only by the grace of God. And so, if we claim to be the spiritual heirs of the Reformation, then a brokenheartedness, a humility should mark us. And that's actually what Machen wanted us to be known as. He wanted our, our body to be known as the church of the broken heart. That we would never look to ourselves for our own strength. We would never look to ourselves for our salvation. But we had always turn away from ourselves to Jesus Christ. Amen. And know that our righteousness is found in Him and in Him alone. Now... It's not always easy to be OP, but it's blessed. It's blessed to be in a church that loves the Lord and the straight teaching of the Word. And so, what should mark us is a thankfulness. What should mark us is a thankfulness, and we also, what should mark us is a service in which we give ourselves humbly to our God and to stand for Him. Luther and Calvin did not rejoice in having to point out the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. But they were duty-bound to stand by the Word of God even if that meant their loss. Manchin and others, and now we ourselves, we take no comfort in pointing out the errors of the mainline church. But we have no choice. We're bound to our God. We're bound to His Word. And it's coming upon us to humble ourselves before it that the judgment that comes upon us, the judgment from King Jesus, would not be that we do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God which is seen in the resurrection. So as we come to the table this morning, let us rejoice that Jesus Christ has done it all for us. He has taken our place upon the cross. We deserve the wrath and curse of God for our sins. But He has taken our place that we might be cleansed. But He has rose again from the dead. And we are those who are joined to Him in resurrection power. May we then, as we go forth, May we show that we are those who have wiped from above as we humble ourselves, as we seek to submit to Him and to love Him with everything within us, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Amen. Amen.